0: Good morning, everyone. You're on YesFM with Kath Kovac for our weekly Women's Voices show. Hope everyone's having a great day. This morning I have a guest from Brisbane on the show, Kate Storey, who is a children's book author and also runs her own publishing company. Morning, Kate. Thanks for joining us.
1: Good morning, Kath. Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, no problem at all. How are you going this morning?
1: I'm going really really well Kath. I've had a little bit of a discombobulated morning because um, we've had a lot of wildlife encounters in our backyard.
0: And what's been going on there?
1: So this morning we have we have a, a nest box in our um, she-oak tree and this morning we had a family of baby ducks in the backyard. So we, uh, we've had quite a number of broods in our nest box and each time the eggs hatch, a couple of days later, the little ducklings jump out of the box and get shepherded, shepherded by mummy duck um, to the creek that's just across the road from us. So this morning we woke up and there was mummy duck with five little ducklings and one little duckling just about to jump out of the nest box.
0: And then um did they get make it safely to the creek?
1: Well, it, that, was the, that was the slightly discombobulated morning, part of the morning. So I have two small children. I have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. And we decided that we were going to shepherd these ducks to the creek. We also have a family of local kookaburras that love to eat the baby ducklings. And since the kookaburras moved in and had young of their own, not many of the baby ducklings have successfully got down to the creek. So we were really excited to find these little ducklings in our backyard but were quite protective of them so the kids and I started trying to shepherd them out of the backyard and the backyard is fully fenced so we had to open all the gates and open underneath the garage and we went to shepherd these little ducklings out but in the process um, things didn't go too smoothly and we we scared mummy duck but I was worried that she would then not make her journey to the creek because we'd scared her too much. Um, and I didn't want her to be making the journey too late because we actually have a lot of traffic out on the front, on the road that runs at the front of our property. And I al- I wanted the ducklings to get safely across the road, but I also wanted my kids um, to be safe while we were shepherding the ducklings. But it all went relatively well. We opened underneath the garage. Mummy duckling went through and I shepherded them down. We found a gap in the traffic. We shepherded them across and, and then we watched them go down to the creek, happily uneaten by any kookaburras and safe from the traffic.
0: Well, I can imagine why that is a discombobulating morning and what a fantastic word. I love that word. <laughs> I think discombobulates one of my favourite words. Um, Kate, I reckon that there's definitely a story in that. What, what about you?
1: I I really hope so. So these ducklings have have really, they've almost become part of our family. And um, we didn't know anything about wood ducks until um, we had that really big rain a couple of years ago in Brisbane. And we put up the um, possum box. Well, it was meant to be a possum box for our possums that live in our roof. And the wood ducks moved in and we went to just check on the possum box see if anyone was living inside and my husband found these 10 absolutely perfect and beautiful white eggs in this basket of of down of duck down and they were just so beautiful but we didn't we hadn't seen any adult birds around or any adult ducks so we put a message on the nest box forum and they said that what the ducks do is they'll lay an egg a day. And they don't actually start sitting on the eggs until after all the eggs are laid. So some of the earlier laid eggs might not actually hatch because they might get a bit too cold. Um, But in those first few broods, especially when they had really large broods after the rain, a few of the little ducklings got left behind and um, mummy duck usually comes back for them. But because we had a situation where they kept jumping out of the nest box and we were worried about their safety, especially while we were at work, we um, talked to the wildlife carer and we actually decided to put the little ducklings in, the ones that had been left behind in a bucket and go down to the creek and find mummy duck. And um, that, that reuniting process went really, really well. But mummy duck absolutely attacked me as I was trying to shepherd the little baby duck um, to the water that day um, mm-hmm. and reunite mummy with baby ducks. So, so these ducks, so over the last, you know, two years, year and a half, the family has got very, very attached to these families of ducks. And they, they seem to be, apart from the kookaburras, well, we had quite a few um, failed broods um, before and after that. They seem to have been quite successful. Oh,
0: that's incredible. And is it so? Did you say they're wood ducks?
1: So they are wood ducks. So apparently, there's some other ducks that will also occasionally nest in hollows, but wood ducks are a hollow-dependent species. Are they native? They are. They oh, are. Oh. So um, and I think. I we're not we're not super super close to the creek we're probably about 300 meters away from the creek and we do have a road and a very urban environment between us and the creek so um we were quite surprised that they ended up nesting there but I actually work for my local catchment coordinating committee and we actually have wood ducks that are also nesting in the nets boxes there
0: that's so interesting because I never would have imagined that a the duck would would nest in a in a hollow or high up in a tree i always thought they'd find somewhere you know um, close to the ground because that whole thing of the ducklings having to to launch themselves from from a few meters up and onto the ground is is quite dramatic isn't it
1: so this was the first time we actually witnessed one of the ducklings jump out of the nest box this morning and the nest boxes that the ducklings are using at work at the um at the at our work centre, they're a lot higher up, <laughs> so the ducklings must really they must jump about three or four meters down, which is quite quite daunting considering the fact that they're in their first few days of hatching.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's just I'm just trying to imagine. It must be quite a sight. I don't suppose you managed to catch it on video or anything.
1: I didn't. We were we were so focused on on the welfare of these ducklings. We didn't manage to catch a photo, but we have we do have photos from earlier broods, right? Which is yeah. quite exciting. And photos of photos of my kids diligently shepherding them down to the water. <laughs> do they have a couple? Is it the same duck having a few breeds?
0: No, they would only breed once a year, wouldn't they? Is it different ducks populating it? Have you got any idea on that?
1: We're not we're not a hundred percent sure, so when they when they decide to use the nest box, apparently they're i and I might not be right on this, but apparently they're quite monogamous. And we do have both mummy and daddy duck checking out the um, nest box. They usually land on our roof or the neighbour's shed roof. And you can hear them kind of going rark, 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 as they like discuss whether they think this is going to be a good place for them, um, for this brood. And I think with the lots of rain that we've been having and lots of hot weather, they've been able to have more broods than usual. But what's also really interesting is, they're right outside our window. In fact, I can see them while I'm talking to you now. But when, when they're not shepherding them down to the water, they're very, very subtle. After they've decided on the nest box, after that, they become very um, secretive. They arrive as the sun sets. They fly directly over our roof. Unless you're really observing them, you might not even notice that they're there.
0: Stealth ducks.
1: Stealth ducks, definitely. And and they have to be with the local kookaburras that are very, very aware of their presence.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. I yeah, I knew kookaburras ate uh, lizards and snakes and other things, so I'd never really thought about them snapping up a tasty little duckling.
1: Re- they do find these ducklings very, very tasty. And when the <laughs> kookaburras first moved in and had children of their own, mummy duck actually tried to do something quite different and she would tuck one duckling or maybe two ducklings at a time under her wings and try and fly them directly to the creek to protect them from the kookaburras but inevitably the kookaburra would attack her and she'd drop her duckling um, and then eat it which was incredibly so my children got an introduction to the fierceness of nature. They mm, yeah. um, also found it a little bit distressing and it's it's hard to know how much intervention is appropriate.
0: <laughs> well, that's right but I'm sure you do what you can and it's a beautiful story. So in NASA FM, we're talking with Kate story and and you might think that we'd be talking to a duck expert if you've just tuned in but <laughs> Kate's actually a children's book author. And I really think that she should write a book about the whole duck story and actually call it Stealth Duck and I'll just take um, 15% of the profits.
1: Thanks, Kate. That sounds
0: fabulous, Kat. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Kate, tell me about um, about becoming a book author. Um, has Have you been doing that for a long time or is it a relatively new venture?
1: So it's, it's a relatively new venture. So I... Um, I've always had a fascination with Australian wildlife and Australian ecosystems. And I was actually really struggling to find children's books for my own children. Um, I really believe that storytelling plays such an important role in environmental consciousness and, and bringing up children that are aware of their surroundings. And we really can't have enough children's books that focus on our ecosystems i i want the whole world to be saturated with them really
0: Mm. and so do you think that that they um that's a really important thing as well as what they learn in school i mean do you think school's enough or definitely books are you know an important part of their education at home as well probably more so in that respect what do you think
1: Absolutely. So I think it's a mixture of both, but there's also a little bit of education that has to happen with educators. It's interesting. I do a lot of kindergarten visits with my two the two books that I have. And when we talk about education for sustainability, which is um, a cross-cutting issue in early childhood education, and when childcare centres get a t- assessed, they get assessed on whether they are integrating sustainability into their practice. It's interesting how many kindergarten teachers really are blown away when I point out that a knowledge of your local species needs to be central to sustainability education. And there's a little bit of an aha. Actually, if our kids don't know our local animals, they actually can't protect them. And now that our kids occupy a lot of space where a lot of our really beautiful, precious, charismatic animals are actually locally extinct, writing has and, and illustration and art in general has a huge role to play in keeping those animals alive in the national consciousness.
0: Mm, yeah, that's a really interesting way to put it. Um, I didn't realise that, that childcare centres, it's been a few years for me, I'm a bit out of that. So and I didn't realize they had such a focus on on environmental sustainability these days actually.
1: They do and it's really really lovely. But what I do find is a lot of our our images of sustainability tend to be um quite in a way quite sterile. There there's a lot of pictures of mowed lawns and neat gardens and um and it doesn't necessarily encompass the fact that sustainability and loving our wildlife is actually, you know, really appreciating a bit of mess. It's it's having those physical um, experiences of seeing a possum in your backyard, um, you know, seeing wood ducks coming out of the mm. nest box, um, mm. and um, and I think that that real embracing of how. We fit into a natural system. is It's so exciting for kids because they're so they're already so in tuned with animals at that age, mm. and so if you if you can really grab onto that love that they already have and celebrate it through storytelling or through art, it's the it's the perfect time.
0: Mm. Absolutely. Um, so. When you realised that you couldn't find the books that you wanted and you decided to write them, did you just go, right, that's it, and begin writing? Or did you do something, did you have seek out any kind of um, training or join any groups? Like how did you start off when you writing, authoring journey?
1: So it was a little bit, I, I read a lot about, you know, what makes a good story and some of the conventions that you need to follow. And um. It was a little bit of a personal journey as well because I had had a completely different career before this and then I, my husband and I were actually living in the remote Northern Territory. We were up in Arnhem Land and I'd grown up in a family of, of environmental scientists and I felt that there was something really missing that I hadn't tapped back into that that childhood love and that family understanding of the world basically and so I was feeling a little bit lost and I went back and I did my diploma in conservation and land management Mm -hmm. and that involved it um we had to go out into the field we went out in Catherine just outside Catherine and we trapped bandicoots and measured and weighed them and um and I had a little bit of a also a little bit of an aha moment coming from Brisbane moving to the Northern Territory of how little I knew of different parts of Australia and how how um, little I knew about our arid and semi-arid ecosystems as well and so that so that that kind of personal change had to happen and then the story writing kind of came kind of came from there first I just was making up stories and reading them to my kids and and then and then I was like oh I'd like I'd like to show this to the rest of the world.
0: <laughs> mm, yeah, well, great idea. No point keeping them to yourself, is there,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, when you've got lots of stories to tell. So, yeah, I mean, you did write about that uh, having, I think it's very common, that lack of understanding of, of um, those kinds of landscapes, because obviously so many of us and the ma- huge proportion of Australia's population lives within, a, you know, a few kilometres of the coast, basically. Um, and down that eastern side and, and southern side of Australia and not that many in, in the centre or non-territory. That's one place I haven't really, I have been to Uluru and um, Alice Springs oh, 40 years ago just on a, you know, a small like tourist trip. I've never been to Darwin. Um, and, yeah, it's one area that I don't really know a lot about either. So tracking bandicoots sounds like fun. What other kind of things did you do out there?
1: so we we found lots of um so we found lots and lots of um the um olive pythons they were amazing we we saw a lot of snakes, we saw a beautiful little children's python we um found bower birds that had collected white objects, and the main white objects they could find were actually skeletons of other animals, so it was like nice. these. Spe- these spooky bowerbirds' nests with spooky skeletons inside them, um, which I thought was quite fun and and novel. Um, we yeah, because
0: bowerbirds th- always like they you always read that they just collect shiny blue objects, don't you?
1: Yes, and what I, I did think it was quite um it was quite fabulous that hardly anything within these nests were man made. Um, I found that quite thrilling, and we found you know, the, the skeletons and scats underneath, um, owl, owl, um, powerful owl nests, mm-hmm. um, we saw a beautiful bird life, wedgetail eagles, um, but it was interesting, it was just before, um, the big rain came through in 2021, and so it was incredibly dry and incredibly hot. And I think a lot of the wildlife populations had been really affected by that um, because they really, a lot of them really started to boom during the following wet seasons.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's such a, um, creates such a contrast, almost like a different country before and after the rain, I suppose.
1: Oh, absolutely. I think that they would only got 10% of, the rain that they were meant to have that year. So it was, had been really, really dry. And the year before that it had been 50%. So, so it was very, very dry.
0: Mm, mm. Um. So you said that you grew up that your family or your parents were environmental scientists. Was that right? Yes.
1: Yeah, so my, my grandmother and she, she kind of played a role in this because um, I didn't start writing until after she died and it, it felt like there was a little bit of of me honouring her. Um, so um, Edna was her name and she um, was a botanist. And Edna had spent most of her life supporting my grandfather's career because he was a diplomat. Um, and when, the, when they retired in their 50s, Edna went to do a few, she was also a linguist, so, Latin names were really like she was in tune with with her Latin names. She um, went to do a few night classes at the university, and they said, "Oh, we think we think you should take this further." And she ended up having getting a PhD scholarship and doing her PhD on the evolution of Australian and African flora based on a bulbine. Um, so, and, and she, her and grandpapa even went to um, Geneva so she could do part of her studies there. So, but she really had, she really had this amazing love for wildflowers and she put, passed that on to her daughter, who is my mum. And mum is very, very, she studied botany when she was younger. And then when we were teenagers, mum went back and did her environmental science studies and then went and did her PhD in fire ecology.
0: Wow. That so, is fantastic. When- like two two women like that um, going back in, you know, later in life after bringing up kids and, and doing whatever, especially a grandmother in in her 50s. Um, I mean, I'm in my 50s now and, and the word, I mean, I've already done a lot of this study beforehand, I suppose, but just to, trying to imagine going back to do some serious study makes me sort of go ooh. <laughs> so I'm super impressed. You know, that's amazing that she that she did that, and then and that your mum did that as well. So, wow, that's incredible. And then your mum, your dad also is in the field.
1: So my dad has always been really, really into wildlife, and but he had no official study in the area. But he was definitely the one that took me out into the bush, where we went bushwalking and exploring, and um, so so it was definitely a whole family story.
0: Mm. Oh, it's brilliant. It sounds to me like you could even, you know, write a book about <laughs> your families um I'd be fantastic to write a little book about your grandma.
1: Well, I, I what I think is really interesting is there were a lot of amazing um and I'm just starting to scrape the surface but there were a lot of amazing female botanists that really took the charge and and showed the world the beauty in Australia's flora. Um and I think what Edna and mum taught me was that when people say you're going to have multiple careers in your life, um, we're kind of like, oh yeah, I suppose so. But they really actually prove that. Mm. I mean, both both of them were mature age students. Both of them had, had kids um, and both of them, I think part of the reason they were so passionate about what they did is because they had such a journey to get there.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And if you go back to do something like that later in life, you really, you know, uh, I guess know what you want to do a bit more and and can be a lot more committed to it because, yeah, all those other sort of responsibilities are probably, you know, um, partly out of your life or what have you. And I think mature age students, are very mature age students, you know, as opposed to people just in their mid-20s who call themselves mature age students. <laughs> like I was, um, you know, they bring so much life experience and everything to to the study, I think, and it also really enriches it for for other people who are there, younger people who haven't had that. I think it's just the most fantastic idea for older people to go back and study like that.
1: Ab- absolutely. And you, you also must be really sure that that's where you want to be and I suppose mm. it takes time to very few of us actually know um, my husband and I always joke that we still don't know what we want to be when we're adults oh yeah I'm I'm (laughs) constantly like that I still don't know either we're both over 40 but we still don't know what we want to be when we're adults
0: yeah no well yeah and it's even worse because we're um, I mean we're basically the same and um, uh, you know early 50s and my husband's nearly 60 and it's still like yeah what do we want to do with our lives (laughs) (laughs) What we want to be when we grow up? I don't know. I think you
1: just. Are I what love the fact at. that we we're still we're still allowed to make those decisions. Like those decisions are always ours, um, which we um we're allowed to make big life changes at any any time in our lives.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. You're certainly not um, stuck in the first job that you have when you leave um, when you leave school. Thank goodness. <laughs> I'd still be flipping burgers. Um, so Kate, let's talk a little bit about your um, books on Yes FM, We're talking with Kate Story, uh, a children's book author. And so, what was the first? Did you work on a few books sort of before um, you published one, or did you sort of publish the first one that you wrote? Or what was sort of your introduction into getting a published story?
1: So it was interesting. I didn't. I didn't even. Um, I didn't even try and get a publisher. I just started publishing myself, which I understand is a little bit um, very, very different to the journey of many author- authors. Part of the reason why I started publishing myself is because I had read that they um, that publishers tend to not want you to come with your own illustrator and I had very specific ideas about illustration and in fact my best friend Sarah, um, Sarah Matsuda is the illustrator of my books and she's absolutely, um, her illustration style is just so unique and so beautiful and so rich Um, that I really, I didn't want any possibility that 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 relationship could be taken away from the two of us because they really are a collaboration. And so I had lots and lots and lots of stories that had been bubbling around and I think one of the things that I find, one of the greatest challenges I find is knowing which one to put my energy into next. Um And sometimes we've put one on the back burner and then we've thought, oh, we wished we were because it really, it's it's a two-year process from start to finish. Um, so when we put one in the back burner, it's going to be on the back burner for a couple of years. Um, mm. We started with Snuggled Away, partly because we wanted to start with something gentle. It's a gentle nighttime poem about all the animals that and what they'd be doing during the night. And I think in terms of, I really wanted my children to know the names of Australia's animals, and I felt that that was a really good way of teaching them that they would listen to this bedtime poem, and then they'd go asleep dreaming about all the activities that the animals would be doing at at night. It's not text heavy; it's it's just a simple rhyming poem. We um we made sure that we covered some animals that the kids would already know, but then we brought in animals that they may not have ever heard about. And I was hoping that parents would also have a little bit of an aha moment as they're reading. So we, we've we got Fasca gales in there and a lot of, Fasca gales are a local species. Um, my dad was staying in a property just outside Brisbane and he had Fasca gales in the roof but a lot of people have never heard of a Fasca gale. So, ah, so we, what is it? <laughs> so a Fasca they're related to quolls. So Australia has um, a, a like a family of animals that are carnivorous marsupials and I, um, I've i only ever read the name of the family, so I'm a bit worried I won't be able to pronounce it, but um, it includes tiny, tiny little planar gales and um, dunnets and anticlinus and it also includes quolls and tassie devils and so um fasca gales are in the same family they live they're arboreal they live up in trees they're hollow dependent they need to they need tree hollows and they're fierce fierce hunters um and when they weren't endangered um there there was often a bit of conflict with humans actually because they would eat they, they're a lot smaller than a chicken but they would eat eat people's pet birds and and but they're also very very good if you ever have rats in your roof they'll eat them too um they're really really fierce hunters so they look a little bit like and and it's i've seen lots of photos of them of course and um gone and seen the the sad stuffed ones in the museum um but I actually had one of one of my customers who buys the books and he, she uses them as a fundraiser for the wildlife care she does. She showed me a video of uh, Fasca kale on her veranda, and they're so they've got so much personality and character. They're so adorable. And I, I suppose one of the things that motivates me to write is knowing that a lot of kids will never have a Fasca gale on their veranda and they'll never be able to experience that amazing human connection between them and Australian wildlife um, unless we put it in a story. Mm.
0: So the Fasca gale then looks a little, did you say it looks a little like a quoll or is this related to a quoll?
1: It does. It does look a little bit like a quoll. So it has that um, real, um, you know, pointed snout. It would have quite sharp teeth um oh and they so we have um there's different species of fasca Gales, but the ones that we get on the east coast are the brush tail and it looks like um one of those brushes that you would use to clean out your kids bottles that it's really <laughs> spectacularly fluffy like yeah. it's um it's quite, it's quite, it's quite animated. Um, so, um, and hence why the brush-tailed Fascagale, but you also have up north and NW have red-tailed Fascagales. So, mm-hmm. um, and they are, they're really local. There would be Fascagales around Canberra. There's definitely Fascagales around Brisbane, um, But but they're very, very rarely seen. And what is interesting with the rain is a lot of people who didn't even know what a Fasca was are finding them. So, so dad sent me a message with this photo of a Fasca and he's like, Kate, what is this? And I'm like, Dad, have you read my book? <laughs> <laughs> It's <laughs> and, and so he was very excited. But um I'm a lot on a lot of like Facebook wildlife groups and a lot of people were having that aha moment. They were like, Oh my gosh, I've found this creature. I've never seen it before. I don't know what it is. Oh. Um, and I think, I think one thing about Australia is we do have that opportunity that that um there are our wildlife that we that, that people don't know that isn't about isn't in our general knowledge and we and so we can get excited all over again and that mm. that's kind of really that's a really lovely thing
0: yeah that that is because I, I mean now you say the word a few times i think i have heard of them but i couldn't really have told you what it was if you just told me the name and what and about the?
1: Oh, oh sorry kath i was going to
0: ask what about the planet planet gale is that like a also like a fasker gale or is it something completely other
1: so they're tiny. They're so so small. Um, they probably weigh the same amount as a fifty cent piece, or maybe even less. They're they're. I think they're one of the smallest um little marsupials that you can have. And and what I what I think is lovely about these little little things that maybe people would just dismiss as you know little mice. ours have pockets. So cool. Have, have they have pockets. They have pockets. It has a little pouch. So this tiny little Santa girl, <laughs> <I don't>, uh, <laughs> has uh, a pouch. So they were being much more arid ecosystems and um, like a lot of your, you, you know, your smaller, smaller muscle
0: And so could that kind of thing be mistaken maybe for a little Little mouse-like looking creature.
1: Yes, absolutely. I'm not that sure if it was a planning but there was actually a um one that got I'd read in a newspaper article one that got caught in a bottle um around Catherine. I don't know if it was a planning or one of the other related species, but um, and I think that they the people who found it originally thought maybe that's just a little mouse, but it's actually. <laughs> One of these these gorgeous little uniquely Australian marsupials.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's really cool. Um, and the antechinus is another one that's a little bit like that too, isn't it? Looks a little bit like a mouse.
1: Absolutely, and that and what I um, but if you look at their little snouts, they do have this kind of. I always think that they they look like they have that they've got a little bit of spunk. They look a bit like they. they're they're fierce they might be tiny but I'm sure they will be fierce little hunters
0: yeah yeah I think I have very unfortunately you know with a cat I think I have um, we did find something that um, was no longer in the living phase and it must have been one of these little carnivorous municipal things because we didn't know what it was but it certainly wasn't a rat or a mouse and and it did um, look like it would have been quite fierce whatever the poor thing was um yeah. Oh, that but that's only sense one.
1: Sense. Only one ever. And was that around the Canberra area?
0: Yeah, we're about an hour from Canberra. So in that sort of rough region, yeah. Yep.
1: And mm. I, I have um I don't know if I'm just more aware of it or I'm more my ears more open to it, but I have been hearing a lot of people around um, especially going north of Brisbane in the Sunshine Coast hinterlands finding Anticlinuses um, for the first time, and I do wonder if they um, they really have um, been able to thrive with all the rain that we've been having. So they're oh. populated, um, but small small quals our northern quolls, so our Queensland quoll species, the small ones, which is the northern quolls, they're a lot they're a lot closer to the size of a Fasca gale. They've been really, really impacted by cane toads, uh-huh. and I think that's quite understudied. But I wouldn't be surprised if it's some of our carnivorous marsupials have also been impacted by cane toads because they're poisonous. They, yeah. Um, so you think
0: they try to eat the cane toad, or
1: yes, and they because frogs do form part of their diet, uh-huh. but if you if you get a cane toad instead, it can be a real. Um, death sentence for whoever's catching you
0: yeah yeah absolutely
1: so um how
0: um with your life as a no sorry what is the name of your book I'm having a
1: so snuggled away is the first one and then the second one
0: yep yep I just was wanting to ask how did you go with snuggled away has it been a success
1: So it's been really successful actually so they are self-published and I um Distribution and self-publishing is is brutal. You know, a lot of a lot of places will um say that they won't stock self-published um books, which can be quite disheartening. Having said that, we have we've um we did a print run of three thousand and we've sold all three thousand and we're now on the second print run. So for a self published author, that's
0: that's
1: yeah. pretty much unheard of. It's that's so fantastic. Exciting. Yeah. Um and and so and and we do plan to do a second print run of the perfect hollow at some stage as well. So um, that's been really heartening. I think the um, the craving out there that people have for uniquely Australian wildlife stories, mm. um, people do have very um, they re- they really have a thirst for it, and they have a thirst for local wildlife Australian stories as well yeah um, sure
0: yeah that's that's right and so the perfect hollow tell us a bit more about that one
1: so the perfect hollow is about a greater glider and um the reason that we chose a we could have the whole premise of the story is um about an animal searching for the perfect hollow and we could have chosen any hollow dependent species there were so many to choose from including a but we we chose a Greater Glider because we couldn't find, and I'm sure there they can't possibly have been none, but I could not find a single children's book with a Greater Glider protagonist in it. And when, um, you know how you kind of map your life trajectory with the ages of your children? Greater Gliders had no listing under Australian environmental legislation um, until my son was born in 2016 when they were listed as threatened. Mm -hmm. And then um, by the time we started writing the book, they were listed only, you know, only five years later or six years later, they were listed as endangered And, and hardly anyone knew what a greater glider was. I mean, oh. even now with the Bush book, people will often think that my book is about a sugar glider. Um, and so that was part of the reason we put it out there is we had this absolutely charismatic, like they're so, so gorgeous. Um, one of the illustrations, it looks like a baby Yoda. They're so cute. They're so adorable. And yet this gorgeous creature hadn't had its own own day in the in the sun in mainstream children's literature, so we thought that that, that had to happen.
0: Hmm. Does he um, have a? In, does the greater glider have a name in the story?
1: No, so because it's because it's in the perspective of the greater glider, it's uh-huh. written in first person. So, um, I suppose maybe I should give it a name so that I can say my good friend, uh-huh. <laughs> my good friend. Patricia or something um Which is but, the great <laughs> glider. <laughs> but she um she um so she's looking for the perfect hollow and and she has um one hollow is too small and one hollow is full of Euro- European honeybees um another hollow is home to a snake and another hollow is home to an owl. And so things aren't going too well for our greater glider, but eventually she does find the perfect hollow as the name suggests. And she has a little baby of her own, um, which isn't said explicitly in the text, but you can see it in the illustrations.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So how much do your your stories rely um, very heavily on the illustrations then?
1: Oh yes. So they're they're very much early childhood books. So they're not text heavy and they're they're made for the age group and the illustrations, I mean they wouldn't they wouldn't exist without the illustrations. The illustrations are one side of one side of the coin really. Mm. Um and they and they're stunningly beautiful. And I think one of the things I really loved about creating these two stories as they're both set at night, so we have lots of dark, rich colours, um, and this that contrasts with the silver, the silver bark of the um of the gum trees and the rough darkness of the iron barks. So there's so visually, there's such a feast that has come alive on the on the pages. Mm-hmm.
0: And that how what kind of drawings are they does she do it in pencil or are they watercolors or what kind
1: of so she works in acrylics primarily so um and they so they're very very rich rich colors and then sometimes she'll put mixed media on top of that so some pastels and and some some pen to make it um, to add more detail but mm. they're incredible rich artworks and each illustration so each illustration of Snuggled Away was um, it's an A3 they're A3 artworks Um, and that that book was 40 pages long. So it doesn't mean that the story took up 40 pages because we had a lot of um, scientific information at the back of the book. And we also have a catalog with the common, the scientific names of all the animals at the back. Um, but it was a, it was, and so it, it had to be 40 pages so we could fit that in. Um, but it was an incredible feat because, um, each double-page spread with two A3 illustrations. And mm. um, I love to say that Sarah's um, artworks are rich with the colours and textures of the Australian bush.
0: Mm. Well, that's a very nice description.
1: <laughs> so if you just tuned in on
0: Yes.fm, uh, I've been talking with Kate Story about uh, writing, illustrating, producing children's books, children's uh, books about Australian animals particularly, uh, have you had ideas or do you think you might ever write or do books about other topics or do you think that you're just going to continue to, to raise awareness of Australian animals?
1: So I, I think I want to, I'm going to focus on Australian animals. I, I feel quite passionately that the fact that so many of our bedtime stories are so Europe-centric um, actually, has on the ground ramifications for Australian the conservation of our wildlife, and I would really like to be able to work, walk into a library and it just to be full of books that reflect our natural environment. Mm. So, so I think I think that's definitely definitely what I'll. I'll keep focusing on. And, you know, I encourage other authors and publishers to do the same. There's thousands and thousands of books on horses out there and thousands and thousands on cats and dogs and rabbits. I would love to see thousands and thousands of books about Baskigales (laughs) and and greater gliders and um, bandicoots you know that yeah. um yeah and because we we make sense of the world through the stories we hear whether that's on television or the stories our kindy teacher tells us or the books we read at home and if those stories don't bring us closer to the land then we are always going to struggle to have a sustainable future mm. and australia has lost so so much and when we walk out the front door I don't think we possibly comprehend just how much change has happened to our wildlife over the last 250 years um when That was actually something that really struck me when I was living in the Northern Territory and I was doing the Diploma of Conservation and Land Management. And I had an aha moment and I I can't believe it hadn't happened before, to be honest, but someone pointed out that almost all of Australia's mammal extinctions, and we have the worst modern day mammal extinction in the world. um, Our Um, Mammal extinctions have all happened in arid and semi-arid environments. So portraying them in literature becomes even more important. Mm. But what also, so, and then I started, I started reading, um, I think it's this fabulous research that's been put together and it's called like the Unraveling of Australia's Continental Flora and it talked about historic records and it would say you know people couldn't drive a carriage down the dirt roads because it was so full of potholes from digging mammals oh. and so so these things that these animals that have disappeared from our landscape they weren't they weren't just a few obscure animals here and there they used to dominate our landscape and now they're not there
0: yeah and and we haven't Ever learned to or known about them, or had the chance to learn or know about them even before they've gone.
1: No, no, and and part of that, part of that is championing First Nations stories because I am absolutely sure that. And in fact, in one of the um, in one of the articles, they had a footnote and they were talking where they were talking about these mass extinctions and then they'd actually taken some of the museum specimens of these animals that are now long, not long gone, recently gone from our landscape. And they'd taken them back to the local Aboriginal community. And they described the women patting these animals and crying because oh. they had disappeared. And I just thought, you know, what would our environment be like if the people that had had the decision-making power had had these animals in their bedtime stories. Surely their drive to protect them would, would have been greater. But we have a chance now mm. to make this, this better. We have a chance to, and and one thing I should mention is none of my stories are depressing. Um, this is because when we're trying to get children to love their natural environment, we're, we're trying to make emotional connections so we, we can't be didactic straight away. We have to say, look at these amazing animals. Let's make a connection with them because they're part of our story as a, yeah. as a country. Yeah. Um, and, and, then, and then the conversations about, well, are they there anymore? Or um, then those conversations can happen. Um, but yeah. unless we have that emotional connection first, those those kind of things just those animals are just a statistic. Yeah. yeah. So um so that's that's kind of I mean, that's what drives me really.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's um it's powerful, isn't it, to have that connection first. And I think that so many times kids get all the depressing stuff and none of the <laughs> and not the good stuff at the start. So that's really important. Um Kate, I'm terribly sorry to tell you this, but we've actually run completely out of time. Mm. to talk to you further and um but i think that that's fascinating what you've been saying especially about that connection to to first nations people and their stories because those animals would have been in their stories and they would know you know a lot about them so that's that's um that was a really strong image that you said there uh if people would like to know where they can find your books um where would you send them
1: so and Way and the perfect hollow are both sold through my website, which is um, Wet Season Books. So my company name is Wet Season Books. Um, And you can also find them in different, if you're Brisbane-based, we actually have a lot of um, local bookshops that sell them, books at Stones, Quick Brown Fox Bookshop. But if you're Canberra local, I, um, I am trying to think. I don't know if I have many um, Canberra local outlets.
0: Mm, that's okay. And people from uh, who may be listening to this can be all over the country anyway. So um, uh, that, that's fine. I think probably heading to wetseasonbooks.com.au. Is that-
1: that's right. So cool. wetseasonbooks.com.au. Yeah.
0: yeah. Brilliant. Okay. Awesome. Oral, thank you so much for being with us Um here today, Kate, um, on Women's Voices. It's wonderful to hear of your love for the environment and and your communicating it to our future generations. So thanks very much for being here.
1: Thank you so much, Kath. Thank you.